0: Welcome to Blue Medicine Journal, a Jungian podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sandra Luz del Castillo, Jungian mentor, ritual artist, and dreamer, coming to you from out of the blue. As we step into the mythic and wild blue yonder, imagination is key. In synchronicity and serendipity, our first season comes to a natural close with the winter solstice, which, as Astrologer Caroline Casey reminds us is five days and lasts until Christmas. Yay, so this podcast is not late, but rather right on time, and it's packed. I have written and rewritten, and to be honest, for someone who has been at a loss for words, they all seem to come pouring out. I had to edit out what felt like rants or excessive detail that would numb us to the 20,000 Palestinian people who have lost their lives, their culture and patrimony. It's hard to know what is too much, what too little. What I do know is that this solstice is the darkest I've been through. And as an elder, that saying a lot. So I'll start slowly as we find our sea legs on this night sea journey. In the Northern Hemisphere, We welcome this time of year by inviting in the light. Holiday lights, candles, and hearth fires. We bring nature inside to lift our spirits in the gloom. Fir trees, poinsettias, pine cones, holly berries, and wreaths fill the senses and kindle hope and magic through the darkness. Bells jingle, and as a daughter of Oshun, I love bells and Christmas carols are sung on town squares, songs and stories of miracles and goodwill, and the m- miraculous birth of a light child from different cultures all herald the return of the light. The Saturnalia is also celebrated this time of year. An ancient Roman festival honoring Saturn, the Saturnalia had a carnival-like atmosphere and went on for a week. Its earlier roots were found in the Greek cronia. Bonfires were lit, and social restraints were temporarily forgotten. For some Romans, Saturnalia held the promise of the restoration of the Golden Age, a period of peace, harmony, stability, and prosperity, a topic we consider later in the podcast. Winter solstice also celebrates the birth of Huitzilopochtli, the patron god of the Aztecs, both a sun god and god of combat. His birthday on the solstice represents the return of the sun, and in ancient times was a great celebration. More on this god later in the podcast. For those of you who have listened to my other shows, you'll know that myth in the Jungian depth psychological lens is the language of the soul. When recited, their words spring to life, to bring order to the inner chaos and its outward manifestations. Creation myths, in particular, were ritually recited and reenacted every year the world over, not unlike the Christmas story. For the ancients, this practice was a way of regenerating, renewing, and recreating the world, its communities, individuals, the crops, social structures. And even the gods. I will be sharing a few creation myths as well so light a candle and put the kettle on. This solstice we navigate not only the darkness of the season but what has become a dark night of the soul for humanity. I admit since October 7th the horror unfolding in real time has left me bereft and without words. And so, as I struggled, I decided to dedicate this episode to the power of the word. As Chinese activist, artist Ai Weiwei reminds us, timidity is a hopeless way forward. And so, as we lean into solstice during a Mercury retrograde and the U.S.'s Pluto return, we dare to go beyond the cruelty that would take the hope and very breath from us to kindle sparks of love, visions of justice and freedom, to plant hope and courage, to go into the night and dare to imagine the garden with a capital G and the anima mundi, the soul of the world we have been left to tend. As we gather, La Llorona returns to us, not the post-colonial Llorona, We are most familiar with, but rather the Mesoamerican weeping woman, spoken of in earlier episodes. She is the mother who died in her first childbirth and became a celestial midwife in the new moon goddess Sharatanga's court. On this longest night, La Llorona wails from from on high and near bodies of water for the lost children of war, apartheid for those held hostage, or lost to the underworld of sexual slavery. May Llorona's profound and transformative lament pierce the long black night. May the smoke of the sacred resins fill the air as we greet the gods of the crossroads, Elegua, Hermes, and Charatanga. We send love and blessings to the four quadrants of our vast blue world, heart of the sky and Mother Earth, and allow their love and blessings to wash over us in return. We breathe as one, as Plotinus reminds us. I give thanks to the elders of all nations, and the youth and elders in the streets, the artists and writers, ecumenical communities, the mothers and fathers, all calling not only for a ceasefire, but in defense of our Mother Earth, for seven generations to come. I call on the ancestors, and drawing from Caroline Casey, wordsmith extraordinaire, calling in mentors as the antidote to the dementors to cool out the rampant psychosis and teach some manners. I include Starhawk's winter solstice chant here from 1980s, May it rise in spirals from our hearts and minds to the starry heavens. This chant can be done alone or in circles. The longest night, the wheel is turning. What do we give to the night? Here, consider what we would ask the longest night in the depth of her power to swallow up and rid us of, personal and collective. As a proviso, we never toss people into the night, just the ugliness they may carry in their hearts and minds. Let's begin with settler colonialism, for instance, tyranny, hate, war, plastic. And on a more personal note, for any of the complexes that act like curses in our lives, self-doubt, self-sabotage, scarcity consciousness, etc., etc., I've added another line to the chant. The longest night, the wheel is turning. What do we offer the night? What do we bring to this night, in other words? What visions, prayers, blessings, loves, hopes, and dreams do we want to birth? For instance, a green, just, brave new world whose guiding principle is love, where everyone has a home. And or on a more personal basis, a prayer for wealth by our definition of that. Laughter, health, love, home. These are just some ideas to inspire. Tonight, as I light the hearth fire, I invoke the sacred flame, a symbol of the divine heart in many traditions. The divine love. I imagine a complete and everlasting ceasefire around the globe. Feel into that. I imagine that the hostages be freed, equality, dignity, and freedom be restored to all beings, including the flora, fauna, and fungi of our Mother Earth. I light a candle for freedom from the monsters of war, the freedom to grieve and honor the fallen, freedom to reimagine the world and community with a vision towards peace wedded to the land joining ancient wisdom practices to biomimicry and modern technology to rebuild green and to rewild. I light a candle for those everywhere who are joining with others to do the meaningful work to heal, reimagine, and restore balance to the Mother Earth for seven generations to come. As I've said, I have felt at a loss of words. And so this episode is about the power of words and the premise that words are spells. A concept easy enough to grasp when we consider a simple greeting. Imagine you walk into a room and someone greets you. Wow, you look great. We may both feel surprised and uplifted. Whereas a greeting like, Hi, are, are you all right? Is disconcerting and can rattle us, and for how long. By extension, consider the consequences of the headlines of mainstream news. Depending on the talking heads and the masters they serve, words are brandished to trick the mind into taking sides, to villainize one side and create perceived enemies, warmongering, fear-mongering, and othering. And then, of course, There's the the word and world of advertising, whose words and jingles continue to spin the world as we know it into being, the consumer-driven corporate fantasy that has brought us to our knees, as if this is the only world desirable or possible. Jung likened these spinners and whispers to the dark magicians of the Renaissance, As the poet W. H. Auden reminded us, we are lived by powers we pretend to understand. Let us consider, then, the creative power of the Word with a capital W. In the beginning was the Word. Sacred texts and creation stories the world over emphasize the creative power of the Word, from the Bible to the Maya Maya sacred books and creation myths. Mesoamerican scholar Lynn Foster emphasized the words found in the Maya creation text that set the world in motion. The word hal, H-A-L, is a verb meaning both to say and to make appear. She adds that the creation act is not described as an esoteric process in the text, but rather as a tangible act. She refers here to the act of setting and naming the three throne stones associated with the stars of Orion's belt. As the creation myth goes, the paddler gods row their canoe through the blackness before time that is at once the sky and the underworld, or in Jungian terms, the conscious and the unconscious. Monkey, dog, the corn god, and iguana travel with the paddler gods. These two gods must arrive at their destination in the sky and wait for the moment that the stars reach the zenith, at which point they set the three throne stones and thereby create a cosmic center and give birth to creation. This act could be seen as an emergence from the collective unconscious, which means the archetypal, primordial, and instinctual unknown realms, represented here by the animals, while the corn god would represent the humans themselves who were fashioned from corn by the gods. All were being brought into consciousness. It is a reconciliation of opposites, as it were, and a symbol of wholeness. <clears throat> the stars of Orion's belt also represent the cosmic hearth to the Maya. And they aligned three stones in their domestic hearths to align with the cosmic hearth and that way be in harmony. These stars also delineate the birthplace of creation. Point of interest. NASA has since discovered that the Orion Nebula, located just beyond Orion's belt, is in fact a stellar nursery. Planets are actually born there. The Mesoamerican astronomer philosophers knew what they were up to, even without modern technology. Returning to the word, Foster adds that the Maya creation text also uses the word tsa'aka, a verb meaning to bring into existence and put in order. Forgive any mispronunciations. Again, the power of the word to set in motion the creation of our worlds. And I would add a change in consciousness. The power of the word exists as potentials. As we consider the word, let us even consider the etymological roots of the word consider. Consider which Casey reminds us, comes from the Latin com, which means with or together, plus sidus or siderus meaning heavenly body, star, constellation. That said, let us join with the stars to consider the word solstice, to tease out its metaphoric implications and potential on this longest night. Solstice comes from the Latin solstitium, meaning the point at which the sun seems to stand still. Sol means the sun, plus the past particle stem of sistere, which means to stand still, take a stand, to set, place, cause to stand, make, or be firm. Again, if words are spells, solstice is a moment in time, a cosmic and metaphoric vessel in which these potentials are heightened. In that spirit, let us make the time to stand still like the sun, to sink into the eternity of this dark night and imagine what it means to take a stand. We see this all over social media. I stand with this side or with that side. What does it mean at this moment in time? to take a stand on our wildly unstable, war-torn, and convulsing climate-changed planet. Again, taking from the etymological roots of the word solstice, what do we set in place or in motion to make firm or to make in our lives and the world around us and for the seven generations to come? There are no quick or easy answers, but the night is long. And if words are spells, and the heart is the seat of the imagination, as Sufi wisdom proclaims, then let us conjure with words the images arising from our hearts. As Buddhist scholar, systems theorist, elder, and activist Joanna Macy reminds us, we cannot give birth to what we have not first cherished in our hearts. In this vein, I draw from Jungian analyst Robert Moore, may he rest in peace, who assured that longing for a vision of an earth community is not naive, it is utopian. In his words, people do not realize that we are an animal that must have this vision. We must commit to it and shamelessly invest in that vision. We have to gather every group creating a new vision and tend that flame carefully in the early days to create a viable future for our children and other living things. Hear, hear. On this longest night, then, let us also reflect on the word utopia, a word considered to mean nowhere and a word that has become oh so taboo Etymological roots are from the Greek ou, ou, meaning not, plus topos, meaning place. Literally, not a place. Utopia means not a place. An interesting note, however, that we learn from the Etymological Online Dictionary is that since around 1960, the explanation of the Greek ou, ou, or not, is an odd one, as it derives the word from the Photo-Indo-European root A-I-W, meaning vital force, life, long life, eternity. Aha, so a word thought to mean not a place is now endowed with meaningful significance. A place pregnant with vital force, long life, and eternity. This is the power held in this word and its archetypal image. As Jung told us, image is psyche, or soul. In this vein, Sir Thomas More wrote the book Utopia, published in 1516. It tells the story of an imaginary island, which I'd rather look at as imaginal island, which upholds the utmost ideal in legal, social, and political systems, in Moore's, in Moore's view, though we learn nothing of them in our history books, there have been periods of golden ages on earth, including under the Maya king Pakal and Quetzalcoatl, not the creator god, but the Toltec god-man, uh, priest-king. It was a time a peace when the arts and sciences flourished, architecture was at its most aesthetic, aesthetic, and agriculture flourished, and bounty was shared by all people. Today, we need a word to describe what might simply be a world in balance. Yet, in modernity, the word utopia is looked on as highly suspect at best, and its notion is dismissed as the language of conmen and the dangerous cults that grow up around them. Understandable. The sixties saw our share of these guys. Ironically, today's dangerous cults spring from clownish conmen across the globe who use their words to build political platforms that conjure hate and division, build grievances against other promise revenge and incite mob violence while serving the corporate agenda for the end of times. It is the marginalized and lonely people who respond because in a world where loneliness is pandemic, they feel they are given a purpose, meaning and community. But a cult is not a community and a con man is not a leader. He is just that, a con man seeking power from the disenfranchised and lonely. It is interesting to consider that while utopia is taboo, we had normalized and even popularized dystopia. From the etymology, dis means bad or abnormal, and topos means place. The bad place, it would seem, is accepted by default, and business as usual in the corporate fantasy. Dystopia is the stuff of modernity's most popular science fictions and films and currently playing out in our city streets like scenes out of Back to the Future 2 or Octavia Butler's chilling trilogy The Parable of the Sower or The Ministry of the Future by Kim Stanley Robinson All Too Close to Home. Robert Moore attributed this attitude against utopian ideals to the 20th century philosopher Reinhold Niebuhr, who declared that to steward power with a commitment to justice could not be done, that a utopian community on earth was in fact not viable. Politicians and their corporate sponsors gladly jumped on board with this line of thought thereby dismissing a universal and mythic birthright and potential as pie in the sky to be cynically scoffed at, off instead of at least aimed for. Cynicism is easy. Hope is radical in the face of extinction. To contemplate in more said is subversive. I don't really agree with that, I think it's just common sense. But this task, he says, must include a healing work that is both inner and outer and connected to the vision. Quoting Adler, he said, if you keep your mind on task, you can cooperate. As Nelson Mandela put it, there is no easy walk to freedom anywhere. And many of us will have to pass through the valley of the shadow of death again and again before we reach the mountaintop of our desires. On this long night, then, as we stand still, let us shamelessly consider a brave, kind, and just new world. Important to note about a Mercury retrograde is that it is a time that Mercury stands still Demanding our attention. And as the stars pass by it, it appears in effect to go backwards. This six week period of time is ideal for the re words, R E words. As most astrologers would agree, words like reflect, reimagine, reconsider, return, reclaim, restore, and refrain from things which require major decisions or beginning new projects. Technology gets tricky, too. (laughs) For instance, the T on my laptop keyboard is sticking. (laughs) We'll have to contemplate that. That said, let's turn to the story now of Huitzilopochtli. A brief word about the Mesoamerican cosmovision helps situate his story more clearly. As we know from Mesoamerican scholar David Carrasco, the architecture spatial organization, and calendrical rituals of most Mesoamerican ceremonial centers expressed parallels between the time and space of the astro-gods and that of the human and terrestrial beings. For Mesoamerican religions, time and space were inseparable realities. Crucially, Jung found this cosmological parallel with the psyche, In Memories, Dreams, Reflections, Jung wrote, Our psyche, which is another word for soul, our psyche is set up in accord with the structure of the universe. And what happens in the macrocosm, likewise happens in the infinitesimal and most subjective reaches of the psyche. In other words, as above, so below. And now, to Huitzilopochtli, the Aztec god whose birthday is the solstice. His name is derived from two words, Huitzilin, meaning hummingbird in the Nahuatl language, and Opochli, meaning left-hand side, which is a reference to the direction of the south, which in the Aztec worldview pertains to the left side of the body. As with many pre-Christian gods, Huitzilopochtli embodies duality. He is one of the creator gods as well as the god of war. So he wields both creative and destructive powers. As Jung pointed out, the duality of the ancient gods represent psychological wholeness. We are light and dark, conscious and unconscious. As is often the case, different versions of a story exist. This is true of Huitzilopochtli's birth as well. In one myth, Huitzilopochtli is the son of Omoteot, the supreme god who was formed of a creator couple. Huitzilopochtli was the smallest of four sons, each of whom were creator gods. And each were assigned specific tasks by Omoteot, in the creation of the world. Huitzilopochtli and his brother quetzalcoatl not the god, I mean, excuse me, not the god-man, but the crea- one of the creator gods, both of these two were instructed to bring order to the world, which represents one of the potentials that Huitzilopochtli offers. Together, he and his brother also created fire the first male and female humans, the earth and the sun. Here we see the creative potentials, as well as the styles and qualities of consciousness of Huitzilopochtli. These include his ability to work cooperatively with a brother, whom together create fire, symbolically associated with divine heart, the first male and female human, as well as the mother earth and the sun. These latter are all tangible and dual forces, again, symbolizing wholeness. By extension, these can be understood metaphorically as pertaining to the potentials of the solstice as well. Something to contemplate. Huitzilopochtli's second birth story shows more clearly the cosmological story behind the solstice myth and how it plays out on earth. In this myth, Huitzilopochtli is the son of Kwatlikwe, who is one of the forms of the mother goddess. Symbolizing the earth, she is both creator and destroyer, mother of the gods and mortals. One day, Quatlicue was sweeping the temple on Coatepec Hill when a ball of feathers fell from the sky. The goddess immediately took these feathers and stored them inside her clothing on her belly until she could more closely examine them. Later, when she went to gather them, the feathers were gone, and she was pregnant. Now, when Quadliqua's grown daughter, Koyul Shauki, the moon goddess, learned of her mother's pregnancy, she was furious and immediately went to tell her brothers how their mother had disgraced them. She got the 400 brothers so riled that together they plotted to kill their mother. But there was a spy among the brothers who ran immediately up the hill to report the plot to Huitzilopochtli, though he was still in his mother's womb. Huitzilopochtli quickly devised a plan to overcome his siblings. So he was ready when Koyal Shauki and her 400 brothers climbed to the top of Guatepec Hill to kill their mother. At that very moment, Huitzilopochtli miraculously burst forth from his mother's womb, fully grown and in full armor. To defend his mother, the earth goddess, he instantly beheaded Koyal Shauki, the moon goddess, and cast her body from the mountaintop. He chased his brothers, who in fleeing became the stars that scattered all over the sky. Understood cosmologically, Puchli's birth is the story of the sun god battling his sister the moon and his brothers the stars through the longest night. His birth... And triumph on the solstice heralds the return of the sun, giving life to all on earth. The complexities of both myths deserve more fleshing out here than this podcast, this episode can allow, but suffice it to say, Bochli, a solstice child, sun god, creator god, and war god, adds cosmic and creative depth, styles, and qualities of consciousness to the longest night embracing duality as a symbol of wholeness. And since war and genocide weigh heavily the solstice, I'd like to speak about Huitzilopochtli's warrior aspect as well. Like the Greek warrior goddess Athena, who sprung from her father Zeus's head, fully grown and in her armor, Huitzilopochtli too sprung from his mother's womb, fully grown and in his armor. His first act was to defend his mother, the Earth Goddess. This is key, this, this element in, in Huitzilopochtli, right now in this time on the planet. This quality would distinguish Huitzilopochtli from a war god like Ares, say, who fought out of bloodlust, and again, again link him more closely with Athena, who was a force for civilization and went to war only to defend the polis. What we learn from Western history and films chiefly about the Aztecs is not their ensouled worldviews, their celestially based social and political order, nor their architecture, sustainable agricultural practices, not their philosophies, art, poetry, or astronomical and mathematical achievements, not about their precise calendars, nor the periods of time when golden ages or utopias had success. Instead, what has historically been emphasized is the gruesome practice of what has been called human sacrifice, for which the Aztecs were feared and plored understandably. As we know from Mesoamerican scholars, the Aztecs were guided by a mystical militaristic worldview. Their great leader, military leader, excuse me, Tlacaelel, was the war god's emissary on earth. It was he who made Huitzilopochtli, the patron god of the Aztecs, uh, the Mexica people. Tlacaelel led this once nomadic and warrior people to become the foremost empire in Mesoamerica. I'm not you know, promoting empire building. It's just the point of the power of a god. Despite the glory of this ancient civilization, the end of the world had been foretold like the four cosmogonic eras before it. And in the last decade before the arrival of the Spaniards, the empire had grown decadent, and neighboring tribes were increasingly disgruntled. Omens of the demise of the Aztecs were everywhere to be seen. And so in an effort to fend off their doom, great numbers of prisoners of war were being sacrificed to Huitzilopochtli in hopes of appeasing their patron, that he might in turn save them or at least postpone their doom. And so what had by and large been called human sacrifice, some historians are now simply calling war. Human sacrifice is what befell the prisoners of war in the Aztec Empire. Again, the power of words, human sacrifice conveyed an image that served to justify the brutal frenzy heaped upon the Mesoamericans by the Spaniards during the conquest. All of which were committed in the name of Christ and King. Christ, who, unlike Huitzilopochtli, was not a war god, but rather, ironically, a peace-loving god-man who advocated turning the other cheek. In Western modernity, the words human sacrifice continued to serve as proof that the indigenous were so-called savages. That's not the pot calling the kettle black, uh, I don't know, or in Jungian terms projecting the shadow. Integrating the shadow is where the inner work must begin, personally and as nation-states, if we are to make it through this longest night. For the Spanish conquistadores, human sacrifice served as their proof and justification that the indigenous needed to be saved and civilized by the conquistadores' definition of that civilization and salvation which thus gave them license to slavery and all kinds of atrocity and established so-called European superiority accompanied by a moral high ground. The underlying notion is that modern warfare is somehow civilized because it's not ritualized. Modern warfare is simply put human slaughter directed by men in suits, carried out in the name of Abrahamic gods and biblical passages, manipulated in the words of our history books and media, and sold as self-defense and spreading democracy. Unfathomably, vicious weapons and technologies are designed to dismember and massacre Thousands of innocent men, men, women, children, animals, nature, trees, from a distance, like the atom bomb in Japan. While troops on the ground brandish automatic rifles, and like their victims, are haunted and traumatized for decades, many losing themselves to addictions, homelessness, and suicide. All this in the name of profit, and to be accepted by the populace as somehow civilized, justifiable, and good governance. As Casey says, no other species would outsource its leadership to those with no dedication to collective well-being. No other species are so destructively ill-mannered. Utopia, then, could be understood as a dedication to collective well-being. Again, that's just common sense. As we know from myth and history, civilizations are born and die. Some of you have heard me before speak of this moment in time as a Kairos moment, which is what Jung characterized our moment in history. Kairos is a Greek word meaning an opportune moment for what Jung called a metamorphosis of the gods, a mythopoetic way of saying a change of worldview it has nothing to do with change or religion, but a change of worldview, of the fundamental principles defining our era. So much is at stake, he said, and so much depends on the psychological constitution of the modern human. As our world as we've known it comes to an end, It behooves us, which is a great word, it behooves us to wonder, is the patriarchy trying to stave off the end of their reign by preparing for and unleashing wars in the names of their gods and building cop cities to reclaim dominion over what remains of our earth at the end of times? We should watch these men in suits when they gather in the grand and palatial halls of power to shake hands, posing as benevolent kings, godly wise men, and clowns, as they unleash hell with our tax dollars. And while they are busy imagining the world they want, let us return shamelessly to a vision of ours with a few more reflections about the power of words. I recall the story of when Gandhi was asked what he thought of Western civilization. He responded, I think it's a good idea. And indeed, it's a great play on words, a trickster present in the house. Trickster spirit is liberating. And as Casey likes to say, better a trickster than a martyr bee Thich Yat Han, the Vietnamese Buddhist monk, wrote that dialogue takes time and commitment before a war, but not as much as war takes, nor the toll it leaves behind. Another great ancestor, Martin Luther King Jr., told us, I have decided to stick with love, for I know that love is ultimately the only answer to humankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. And I'm not talking about an emotional bosh When I talk about love, I'm talking about a strong, demanding love. For I have seen too much hate. And I say to myself that hate is too great a burden to bear. I have decided to love, Aho. As we face the sixth great extinction, the end of the Anthropocene, the human-centered epoch, again, what does it mean to take a stand? I don't know, but I do know what I have gleaned from our ancestors, and at this moment in time, I stand with the earth and her people, her flora, fauna, and fungi a world without borders, wedded to the earth, beginning in our communities. As a romantic and a dreamer and an elder, I may never see the utopia I believe that we are meant to build, but I will do what I can to shamelessly invoke it, and in the spirit and power of solstice, solstice to name, set, place, make, make firm, a place pregnant with vital force, long life and eternity on earth? Harriet Tubman reminded us, every great dream begins with the dreamer. And as serendipity would have it, this dream is collective and spreading across the globe. Another world is possible if we dare to imagine it and do the work towards it. Otherwise, do we simply outsource the mythic birthright of seven billion of us to a very small percentage of men in suits? Another world is possible. And if we are to outlive this longest night, and we may not, it it is a rite of passage, as Richard Tarnas, the cultural historian and archetypal astrologer, suggests. We must begin by imagining that world from the images arising from our hearts. Reclaim, again the R-E words, reclaim the ancient cosmovisions, the anima mundi, the ensouled world. Next, Next new moon, I'll be invoking the creation myth from Oshun the goddess of love and the Yoruba tradition only in a colonial mindset could we dismiss the goddesses of love and beauty and the powers that they willed finally I close with one last quote from an ancestor who knew how to steward power with justice despite the naysayers, Nelson Mandela, who said, I am fundamentally an optimist. Whether that comes from nurture or nature, I don't know. Part of being optimistic is keeping one's head pointed toward the sun, one's feet moving forward. There were many dark moments when my faith in humanity was sorely tested but I would not and could not give myself up to despair. That way lays defeat and death. Hear, hear. I close with a thanks to the many fine ancestors and the gods who guide us this long and dark night of the soul. And thanks to you all for tuning in. If you like what you hear, please share. Stay tuned as my website is being reimagined and courses and rituals planned. If, like, if you would like to work with me one-on-one, you may contact me for now via my bluemedicine55 at gmail.com or Instagram. My handle is bluemedicinejournal. And last but certainly not least, thanks to my producer, Lucas Bocker, for his wizardry, expertise, and patience. And of course above all for his music, food for the soul indeed. And that's it for now. Thanks again for tuning in. I'm wishing all of you a happy, healthy, safe, and imaginative holidays where the magic of nature, candlelight, music, and love abound. Until next year, stay curious and feed your soul.